I'm Cy Musiker. And I'm Joyce Miller. And, and this, this is Curtain Call. Call. We're back with news about upcoming shows from Reno to Davis, looking for light and joy in a time of darkness and trouble. And this month, we'll meet a novelist writing about our precarious lives here in the foothills, enjoy a wonderful life in Auburn, and hear about Yiddish culture in music. Plus, what to do on New Year's Eve. And let's start with a little self-promotion. song Divorce by Nevada City's Davia, one of the many, many local musicians on the bill for the KVMR Holiday Hoedown. It's a night of acoustic music, both traditional and original, with a holiday theme, so maybe a song called Divorce by Davia (laughs) won't make the cut, but I really liked her energy there. It's a packed lineup for the hoedown. The Moore Brothers, Old Souls, Elena Rayo, the great voices of the Nevada Union High School Choir, and many more. That's the KVMR Holiday Hoedown, returning to the Nevada Theater Tuesday, December 5th. December is a month to celebrate miracles, among them Matthew Whitaker. Blind pianist and band leader Matthew Whitaker off an album from 2021. He's just dazzling on the B3 organ as well in a classic style. It's a throwback to jazz artists like Jimmy Smith. And Whitaker is so young. He's just 22 and so, so good. Whitaker plays the Mondavi Center in Davis December 9th. Long nights mean more time for stories, including the very familiar ones. Legacy Presents is again doing the musical Scrooge, based on the Dickens tale, with Roger Hoopman in the role of the old miser for the 45th year. Yes, Scrooge at the Nevada Theater through December 24th. Other stories have achieved similar classic status, including It's a Wonderful Life from 1947, directed by Frank Capra and starring Donna Reed and James Stewart. Now, you're right when you say my father was no businessman. I know that. Why he ever started this cheap penny ante building alone, I'll never know. But neither you nor anybody else can say anything against his character because his whole life was... Why, in the 25 years since he and Uncle Billy started this thing, he never once thought of himself. Isn't that right, Uncle Billy? He didn't save enough money to send Harry to school, let alone me. But he did help a few people get out of your slums, Mr. Potter. And what's wrong with that? Probably... Here, you're all businessmen here. Don't it make them better citizens? Doesn't it make them better customers? You, you said that they, what'd you say just a minute ago? They, they had to wait and save their money before they even thought of a decent home? Wait, wait for what? Until their children grow up and leave them? Until they're so old and broken down that they, do you know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, it's a Wonderful Life is a story about economic justice, 
romance and tragedy, but with a happy ending. And I cry every time I watch it. Oh, sigh. <laughs> no wonder the State Theater Acting Company in Auburn is staging Wonderful Life as a live radio play. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the State Theater Acting Company's golden age of radio performance of It's a Wonderful Life. The cast for the play was rehearsing on a recent evening, and we talked to the star of the show, Dan Spacek, who in real life is the pastor for the First Congregational Church, where the show will be performed. That's while renovations continue at the Auburn State Theater downtown. Pastor Spacek plays George Bailey, who gives up his dreams of world travel to manage the family's struggling savings and loan, and then in a fit of depression, tries to kill himself. Spacek told us he feels a strong connection to Bailey because he too has struggled lately while getting a divorce. In the story, a guardian angel swoops in to save George Bailey, but Spacek says we all have angels in our lives if we'd only recognize them. While we may not have uh, guardian angels, I think what this story evokes is that we all have those people in our lives that can remind us of what's most important and the ways that our lives, even when we feel stuck and lost and, and kind of in a hole, those people that can kind of help be that hand that pulls us out and reminds us who we really are and the impact that we've really had. And, you know, that the closing line of the show that reminds us that it's not about the things, the, the wealth, the, the material goods. It's about the, the heart and the love and the relationships of your life. These are the things that matter. The final lines of the play, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. And I am choking up here again. <laughs> the State Theater Acting Company presents a live radio version of It's a Wonderful Life at the First Congregational Church in Auburn. Just two shows, December 8th and 9th. And then Sierra Stages does a live radio version of Wonderful Life on December 20th at the Miner's Foundry. And you can watch the movie on the big screen December 17th at the Nevada Theater. Bring lots of tissues. If you've had the pleasure of enjoying Klezmer, the joyous, soulful, and sometimes rambunctious musical tradition of the Ashkenazi Jews of Eastern Europe, you might want to thank this band, the Klezmatics. Apik Korsim, a song about happy heretics. <laughs> Based in New York and closing in on four decades together, the Klezmatics have been crucial to the modern revival of Klezmer. We checked in on Zoom with Lauren Sklamberg, a founding member of the band. He's known for his heartfelt vocals, his accordion playing, and being a scholar of Klezmer. Among other topics, he schooled us about Woody Guthrie's Klezmer connection. A lot of what our band sings about is humanity and peace and understanding, and so in the current times, these a lot of the songs that we're playing are songs based on lyrics that were written by Woody Guthrie for um, the Jewish community in Brooklyn out in Coney Island. Songs that for the most part survived uh, only as lyrics and not with any music. So we wrote music to a bunch of them and recorded them and 
how is Woody Guthrie a in his own way? He wasn't Jewish, but uh-huh. how have you made him a Jewish composer? Well, he had a very strong Jewish connection through his uh, second wife, Marjorie Mazia, who was a a dancer with the Martha Graham Company. And uh, her mother was a Yiddish poet named Aliza Greenblatt, who was also a political activist. And we found out through uh, Woody's daughter, Nora, that Woody and Aliza had, you know, sort of a camaraderie through their art. We like to think that they kind of inspired each other in their own work. Mermaid Avenue, that's a street where the lots and bagels meet, where the halva meets the pickle, where the sour meets the sweet, where the beer flows to the ocean, where the wine runs to the sea, why they call it see your music as an antidote or an answer to the current global mess that we seem to be in with Ukraine and Israel and Hamas? I like to think that a good part of what we do is to inspire ourselves and to inspire our audiences and to give them support and comfort and, you know, reasons to to celebrate and reasons to go out and make your voice heard. With this tour, we're working on a couple of things that will be uh, new to our repertoire. And there really has, I think, rarely been so much strife and turmoil going on. It's like, you know, kind of our calling that we do this as part of our performance and as part of our work. What song have you added uh, that you feel uh, will help people understand your own politics, but also... uh... Yeah, I've been singing for a while now. Um, Holly Neer's song, I Am Willing, which I had translated into Yiddish by Yuri Vedanyapin. I just think that it's it has a universal theme of hope and of courage and of giving people strength in times of struggle. I remember when we first, we performed the song with Holly Neer at a concert in Town Hall, and I remember that she said, you know, I found over the years that this song works no matter where we are and no matter where I'm performing, that it's a song that, that speaks to everyone. when you began playing uh, in 86. Uh, So how has the audience changed and how is their perception, do you think, of Klezmer 
changed? I think that it's changed because people have been able to to hear it through things like Itzhak Perlman uh, taking it on in the documentary and his subsequent concerts under the name uh, In the Fiddler's House. And people having learned how to play this music since the late 70s and early 80s, so many you know, groups have been performing it out there, and there's been so many community-based bands that have been performing it. And I think that it also being part of the world music scene, now that people hear it and they know what it is, and they, it has this name, Klezmer Music, even though that it, that's not traditional name for what it was. It, back in the day, it, it was so ubiquitous that it, there wasn't a, a name for it except that people would call it, you know, the Bulgars, which is a, a type of dance. But now there's been, you know, a generation or two who have grown up hearing this music as part of their, both their identity and as part of the soundscape of their lives. And that's not something that was true when, when I was growing up, for sure. <laughs> Lauren Sklamberg of the Klezmatics. He and his five fellow musicians will bring clarinet, violin, accordion, and a boatload of other instruments to celebrate Hanukkah with a show at the Miner's Foundry on December 13th. And they're at the San Francisco Jazz Center on December 14th. A few more concerts with holiday themes, Christian this time. Never nip the child, never had a home. Never nip the girl who walked the street alone. Heaven help the roses if the bomb began to fall. Heaven help us all. Heaven help the black man if he struggles one more day. Heaven help the white man if he turns. The Blind Boys of Alabama are an astoundingly brilliant gospel group founded in 1939, and they still are exciting enough to garner three Grammy nominations this year. The Blind Boys of Alabama play the Sweetwater Music Hall in Marin December 12th, the Center for the Arts in Grass Valley December 13th, and for those of you east of the crest, the Blind Boys play the Nashville Social Club in Carson City on December 14th. And here's an odd but inviting mashup. Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy is played by Mr. Sun. That's the superstar string band featuring Daryl Anger and Grant Gordy, both former bandmates with David Grisman. And Mr. Sun has adapted Duke Ellington and Billy Strayhorn's jazz version of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Suite for a new grass quartet. I know the whole thing's a little confusing, uh, but it, the music really works, and it's very seasonal. Mr. Sun plays Duke Ellington's Nutcracker Suite at the Freight in Berkeley, December 13th, the Sophia in Sacramento, December 14th, and they're at Napa's Welcome Grange Hall, December 16th. 
Daniel Gumbiner has written a new book that captures the daily life of those who live in the Sierra foothills, especially how fire threatens us with tragedy at any moment. Gumbiner lives in Oakland, but his book Fire in the Canyon is about a gold rush town founded by miners and populated today by ranchers, hippies, digital nomads, artists, and retirees. Sound familiar? Yeah, it does. Uh, Fire in the Canyon follows a long, hot, scary fire season for Ben Hecht and his family and friends. Hecht is an ex-pot grower, now into wine grapes. And we talked to Gumbiner recently via Zoom. So, Daniel, so many people in our listening area have had the experience you describe in the book of evacuating from a fire, the phone alerts, the go bags, the panicked packing, loading up the animals. Have you experienced that yourself? And how are you able to imagine that for the book? I haven't experienced an evacuation for myself. For that, I really capturing that experience, I relied on talking to other people who had been through it. But I think part of what I found is that a a sort of central element of that experience is the fear of losing something that's deeply precious to you. And, you know, I think that's something that many of us have had experience with, even if we haven't necessarily been evacuated. So I think capturing the emotional elements of that experience, that was something that I relied on for myself of just thinking about times in my life when I've thought there was a, a chance that I would lose something in a, in a fully complete way. You live in, in Oakland and you could have talked to people who had to evacuate back in 1991 uh, during the Oakland Hills fire. I mean, the same is true for where you live. Yeah, exactly. You know, it was interesting talking to, spoke to a lot of people who had been involved in fires in the wine country. One of my good friends lost a few of his barns in a fire and I think one of the interesting things about doing the research for the book was realizing how urgent this conversation was for a lot of people and how much people wanted to talk about it and wanted to have a space to share what those experiences had been like. Once I would start talking to people, it kind of just keep going. Like folks really wanted to talk about their different experiences of whether it was specifically evacuating or whether it was just the experience of living with the fear or, or the threat or the idea of it. And so that's something that I hope the book could do was open the conversation to create a space where some of that can be acknowledged and discussed and looked at. Could you read a sample of the book? I could. Let me go grab the book. This passage is actually sort of relates to what we were just talking about. There was only so much they could take. They talked to each other of the fatigue, of the fear. To have this thing hanging over you, it crushed the spirit. Some took practical actions. They joined volunteer firefighting groups, installed sprinkler systems on their roofs. Others covered their ears, decided that it wasn't really that big of an issue, that the media was blowing it out of proportion. But most of them did take it seriously. Most of them woke in the morning and looked at the horizon and looked at the calendar and prayed. On the best of days during the fire season, it was often on their minds. But when there were outages, when they knew a red flag warning was posted, it was particularly bad. You just hoped no one did anything stupid. You hoped there was no one out there starting a campfire, no one driving through town from out of state with no idea where they were, throwing a cigarette out their window. In the evenings, they thought twice about having a second drink or putting themselves in any kind of vulnerable situation. You didn't want to be the person who was drunk or on a sleeping pill when the evacuation orders came through. Those were the people who got stuck in their houses. They'd read about those people. 
there's a lot of sadness uh, weighing on the book, especially at the beginning. Uh, there's this constant anxiety that you describe here about fire. And there's also this irreconcilable split, it seems, between your lead protagonist, Ben Hecht, and his son, Yoel. Why did you want to tell that story? When I first started talking to folks about experiences with fire and doing some research for the book, one of the things that was really interesting to me was the extent to which people felt like their own personal lives, relationships, the social fabrics of their community were transformed by these experiences in the aftermath. And, you know, the fires are obviously very intensely covered when they are happening. But, you know, then the the incident ends and by and large, most, most of the coverage departs. There's so much that happens after that. And so that to me felt like the province of a novel, like the experience of how everyday ordinary people were affected in the more quiet moments of their life and how these incidents shaped what happened to them. The book looks at that. The book looks at, you know, what happens to these three members of this family after this incident? How are they all changed? In what direction does it send them? One of your characters, uh, Yoel, Ben Hecht's son, is a leader of a group you call the San Andreans. Uh, these are eco-justice activists uh, engaged in peaceful demonstrations. Are they based on a real group? Who who are they? They're not really based on a real group, no. But I think one of the things I wanted the book to look at, too, was what does right action look like in relationship to this issue? And I think when I was first working on the book, it was a little difficult to figure out how to incorporate the political into the story. It's obviously an intensely political subject. We all know that. But I think, you know, sometimes when the political enters the uh, a fictional world, it can kind of overwhelm it. Um, and so that was a tricky part of, of developing the story. And ultimately, what I realized was that I could incorporate it through the lived experience of the characters, Yoel, and the way what he experiences shifts his views politically. And so that was ultimately how I approached it. And once I figured out that I could do that, the book felt a lot better to me. It felt like it was really closer to acknowledging the fuller picture of the story. The book reflects that you must have spent a lot of time in the Sierra foothills. Do you have a special fondness or attachment to this area? I do. Yeah. So I, we had some family friends uh, who live in the foothills and, you know, we got to go visit them on, on their farm when we were kids. And it was always such a mythical place to me, a really sort of important experience was getting to go up there. And so I always had the idea that, you know, I might try to set a book there. And when I started writing this book, I really started with that first scene in the book of Ben walking around his farm dealing with all of his little odds and ends and problems that he's got. And I just knew it was in the foothills. There's a character named Jeremy in the book, who's a kind of holy fool. And he suggests a name for a new wine. And he says, Rule 43. It's one of the so-called uh, rules of the internet. Don't forget what brought you here is that rule. And what is that about? I think, you know, that's a great way of describing him. He is sort of a holy fool. And I think it's just a reminder to stay in touch with, with your own sense of values and rightness in the world. 
Author Daniel Gumbiner, his new book, Fire in the Canyon, is available anywhere books are sold, including Harmony Books in Nevada City and the bookseller in Grass Valley. That's where I found a copy, yeah. Good work. (laughs) Speaking of stories about the foothills. Oh, we live in a place we call the West. From the hills you can see the sea. It's in God we trust, but we're looking down, praying for G-O-L-D. That's one of the songs from Gold Can't Love You Back, a sprawling musical epic about gold rush days by Nevada City locals Ryan Wink, Cosmo Merriweather, Jessica Brognon, and Sky Seals. All of whom also star in the show. The show premiered earlier this year, and it's back for a two-week run. Gold Can't Love You Back opens at the Stonehouse December 7th and runs through December 14th. We don't want no IPA, no, we don't want no IPA. Only three or four in them down on the floor, no, we don't want no IPA. It's been one of those days. Turn this thing around before the end of the night. Well, bartender, I need something to cure my pain. Well, I'll take anything you got besides an IPA. We don't know That's the brothers comatose with their funny footstomping good IPA song. And the brothers are gearing up for three gigs in our region starting December 27th at the Sierra Nevada Big Room in Chico, where they presumably will have their choice of beers. Well, probably not PBR. <laughs> well, beer haters going to hate, but this trend just means more IPA for me. And I'm with the band. IPAs are too hoppy. Not that I really like PBR. <laughs> or Coors, uh, <laughs> name dropped in the song. Uh, the Brothers Comatose play the Crystal Bay Casino on December 29th, and they come down the hill for a show at Harlow's in Sacramento, December 30th, and that's almost New Year's Eve. That's when partiers will have some good choices among local venues. The Center for the Arts will observe the arrival of 2024 with the tight R&B band The Dip out of Seattle. The same night, local faves The Deadbeats will hold court at the Miner's Foundry with the stroke of midnight marking the start of the band's 30th year performing together. Deadbeat's first gig, according to Joyce, was in 1994 at the Old Mad Dogs and Englishman Pub in Nevada City, where you spent many decadent nights, I understand. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And in Sacramento, it's an evening of seriously sexy retro soul. We talked a little last month about how Southern California has become a hotbed of Chicano soul, and among its leaders, Joey Quiones, leader of The Sinceres out of East L.A. What you trying to do to me? Doing all the things that you never do to me. This band is so authentic 
Merriam-Webster's Word of the Year. I got that in. And these sinceres have been putting out dazzling soul on the Penrose and other labels, have appeared on NPR's Tiny Desk Concerts, yet they still don't have a Wikipedia entry. How do you like that? Feel the heat. This is such great slow dance and make-out music. These sinceres <laughs> play Harlow's in Sacramento New Year's Eve. Yeah, and we hope you have a safe, fun New Year's Eve. Not to mention a happy Hanukkah and a Merry Christmas. I'm Joyce Miller. I'm Sam Musiker. And, and this, this is, is Curtain Call, Call coming, coming to you from, from KVMR-FM, KVMR FM, Nevada, Nevada City. City.